The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Tuesdays at 10pm on FX. Join us every week after the show. Dan is feeling the human cost of his job and the world in which he lives. As he enjoys his personal life, the life that he spent his life professionally protecting, giving people the opportunity to have a free life in America, he realizes how much of that life he has not been living himself. Welcome to the Americans podcast for season five. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and I'm your host for the series which goes behind the scenes of the show. Today, we'll be talking about episode 505, Lotus 123, with the showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, and also with the director of this episode, Noah Emmerich. Yes, the same Noah Emmerich who plays FBI agent Stan Beeman on the show. I've joined Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hi, Joe. Hello, June. And his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hi, Joel. Hey, June. At Sync Sound in Manhattan, where they've been looking at the final mix of episode 505 with the director of this episode, one up-and-coming chap called Noah Emmerich. Oh, yes. Also known as Stan Beeman. Hi, Noah. Hi, June. So what happens at the mix? What have y'all been doing? Before you, we go on to that, I have yes. to say I love you called him a chap. I think we'll be calling him a chap from now on. That's a very, very He's a fine, good idea. fine young chap. Fine young chap. <laughs> the sound mix is very important so people can understand what's being said on screen. When we finish editing an episode, we lock the picture, which is to say from that point on, no more film editing takes place. And at that point, there's a sound spotting and a music spotting. That's when you go through the entire episode with the sound editors with all of the sound artists and then a second time with the music editors and all the music artists and talk about what sound effects should be put in, what sound problems should be corrected, what we want creatively, and the same with all the music. Then the editors work on it, the composer works on it, Foley artists work on it. Everything is refined and delivered to the mix stage. And then for several days, the artists hear work on laying it in and trying to get it just right. By now, they really know the show. Mm. And then we come in and watch it one last time and do whatever little refinements. Did you make many little refinements? Uh, a handful, yeah. Big things, small things? I mean, literally, if you were to put a number on it, I'd say 15. Yeah, that yeah. sounds about well, right. Well, you know, there are three of us, and I think actually yeah. we had about five notes each. Now, we, interestingly, in the first season, we would spend much more time and have many more notes. But we're working with all of the same people, and by now, we're all very much on the same page in terms of how the show is supposed to sound. They could be small or large. It could be anything from, I couldn't quite hear the dialogue that that guy was saying. Could you pull that out up a little bit so we could hear that? To, it sounded a little echoey in that scene. Is there anything you can do about that? And usually they can fix almost anything. Or even, you know, the subliminal sort of environment created by the sound mix of background noises, cars driving by, a bird tweeting. Yeah. All these little things have a big impact. To the extent that there are Big creative sound choices, those are all made during the editing process and during the spotting process. But the difference between 
dog barking distantly in the background that you can barely hear and one who's very present or a baby crying right next to you or two aisles away in a grocery store mm-hmm. actually makes a difference in terms of the story. And those those refinements get made here. Okay, so if you start watching TV more with an ear towards this, you'll notice there are birds chirping all over the place mm-hmm. that birds you never see. But it's interesting. There's also some just big changes with technology that have impacted the way we make television. One has to do with picture, which is that people are watching their TVs now on 40-inch, 50-inch, 60-inch flat screens that are beautiful and they're like movie theaters. And so we have to pay more attention to how beautiful the final visual product looks. And the same is the case with sound. You know, 10 years ago, people would be watching on their old box sets Mm -hmm. 15 years ago, and they had kind of the tinny speakers that you got with it, and that was that. But today, people can get beautiful sound bars, and that means we get to work even harder and know that people are listening to a much more refined thing. Noah, you directed this episode. This is the third time you've directed an episode of The Americans. Does it get easier? It does get easier in some ways. Uh, In other ways, it doesn't. I mean, the the main way it gets easier is my own knowledge that I can actually, in fact, survive this process and come out of the other end with an episode that's, <laughs> that's acceptable. You know, the very first time, that's an unknown, really. Right, so yeah. I, I just don't, I didn't know if I was going to make it or if I was going to just wildly disappoint everybody or what would happen. Yeah. And you have these, I mean, at least I did, these sort of terrible, frightened, paranoid fantasies of, of failure, of just yeah. really bringing down the house so having survived that first round, you know, the second round I felt a little better and then this time even better. So it gives me more psychological energy to focus on the task at hand and not the fear of, of failure. <laughs> now, you did an episode of Billions, season two, that's now airing. Was it different when it was a show that you weren't part of? Yeah, a similar, you know, the first time outside of my family. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't have the home team advantage, which was a new thread of anxiety and fear. <laughs> Were but you also- more or less afraid? I'm more afraid, yeah. although in a way less because I had done two of our episodes. So, <laughs> so diff- it was a cha- it was a shifting sands of of anxiety, <laughs> uh, but it was really interesting too. Of course, I've worked in New York for a lot of years, so mm. it turned out I knew a lot of the crew I and I knew a lot of the cast um, on Billions. But it was not my crew or my cast mm-hmm. that, in the way that the Americans is, yeah. and that was uh, an invigorating, exciting moment that that I was glad to be a part of. I, I think you really captured a succinct characterization of a life in the arts, shifting sands of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> which right. you choose, which you choose. If like you, you choose, actually don't yeah. need to take on that anxiety. No, you, uh, I was just talking about this the other day, but it's the most thrilling, satisfying thing. If you're not afraid, you're doing something wrong. I feel like in that's business. Ex- that's exactly right. If, if, if you're not afraid, you're being safe. Just speaking from the writing process, if you're not willing to go so deep into the thicket that you don't know how to get out, the result just won't be that interesting. Wow. Well, it's not yeah. just artists, you know, for all people moving mm. towards your fear is right. generally considered to be a positive thing to do. I think that's not if your fear is necessarily jumping out of airplanes. Yeah, or, I don't know or, if you should do or it. Or bears. <laughs> bears or lions don't move the root towards of them. Human expansion exploration, you right. know, the horizon, what lies beyond the unknown. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all of evolution culturally, scientifically, philosophically is predicated upon the willingness to venture into the unknown. I also think it's interesting that. You know, we can make jokes about jumping out of airplanes or lions or bears, but evolutionarily, you know, you talk about us moving forward, but the, our simian brains trigger fear 
that's life and death fear. Right. But mostly we're not facing life and death fear. And the things that paralyze us aren't really life or death fears. And the challenge is to be able to see things truthfully, uh-huh, which is what uh-huh. we were talking about. Right. And uh-huh. to the extent that we can see things truthfully, we can move through our fear, not get eaten by bears and make some progress in life. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, you, you chose to leave your cave, Noah, and you directed this episode. <laughs> yeah. And what was the most challenging part as a director for episode five? Well, it's a lot of balls in the air. It's a, there's a lot happening with a lot of characters. Mm-hmm. None of it is overtly, I mean, not none of it, but a lot of it is not overtly explosive or cinematic in a way. It's internally quite profound and yeah. meaningful and deep, but to capture that and to connect to the audience in a way, especially an audience, you know, that is sophisticated and has seen a lot and is used to a certain level of excitement mm. to translate the internal journey and make it exciting viscerally for the audience, I felt like was sort of the biggest overarching challenge of, of this episode, maybe the season as a whole. It's a really slow roll season. It's very human. It's not a documentary. It is heightened and it is, it is dramatic, but it's very uh, subtle and very incremental and very groundedly human in a way that is not necessarily always the case in primetime television. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember your first episode and you had that big action sequence. Do you, we just don't do as much of that stuff anymore. Do you miss doing that? Or are you sort of relieved to not do that? Well, kind of both. I was, I was, I missed it in terms of, in terms of the velocity of the episode and the engagement with the audience. I had, I had hesitation about the, my ability to realize that a big action sequence is really easy to hang your hat on. Great. Mm -hmm. We're going to work towards that. It's going to catch the audience. We're going to wrap them up and it's going to be very satisfying. Something which, as you say, we don't have as much of that this season. I don't think it means it's any less engaging necessarily at all, maybe even more so, but it requires different areas of massaging and guiding and shaping in a different We don't have action velocity, but we have, as John Langreff said early this season, emotional velocity. And the truth is this episode to me although it doesn't have a big action sequence, boy, it has some huge emotional payoffs and some big surprises. Yeah. You know, and just watching it on the mix stage, one after the other, after the other, it's, it's almost like in those final acts, any of those big scenes could have served as an ending of the episode, but they just right. keep building. And speaking of that, actually, in terms of my own f- feelings of confidence or lack thereof, the velocity of this episode and, is driven by the performances and I do feel more confident uh, as a director in managing and working with the actors on their performance than I do sort of technically piecing together an action sequence. Mm-hmm. That was new for me in mm-hmm. that first episode mm-hmm. I did. And that was exciting. But I did feel more confident knowing that this was more internal dramatics and performance-driven. Well, let's talk about that because there's a big question this year. There's many questions that, that are in the air. But one of the things that's really fun is the question of whether Renee is playing Stan, whether she's deceiving him, it drives Philip mad because (laughs) he doesn't know what's going on. But then that makes it worse for us because, you know, speaking as a regular viewer, you are questioning everything. You've learned that by watching the Americans, question everything. But then when Philip's worried, you're like, well, God, I mean, I'd be crazy not to worry about Renee. He's no idiot. Yeah. Right. And And Stan's a professional intelligence officer, but... As a director, do you need to know whether or not she's deceiving Stan? And is that different from how you, what you have to know 
to play Stan in that right. situation? I think the answer is the same for both, actually. I don't think you need to know. I think you need to have it be possible mm -hmm. in some way, but I don't think any conclusive knowledge is necessary at all. In fact, maybe it serves better not to have that. You know, it's like an actor. If, if I'm playing a role where I'm actually a bad guy, but I pretend to be a good guy, yeah. it's better not to know I'm the bad guy. It makes my job easier. All I have to do is forget that I'm the bad guy, mm -hmm. and then I can be the good guy really convincingly. Mm -hmm. And then at the last minute, it turns out, oh, I'm going to do this bad thing. <laughs> So why have the belief that you then have to sus suspend yeah. anyway? In a weird way, it just makes it more interesting to not know that. And it gives you more uh, possibilities in terms of the direction you can go with the character. Joe and Joel, I know you're not going to tell me, so I'm not going to ask you whether Renee is playing Stan, but do you know if Renee is playing Stan? We're not going to answer that either. No, no comment. <laughs> but what we will say is, you know, we generally will answer actor questions and director questions uh -huh. because we don't like to keep secrets despite yeah. the nature of the show that surprised me despite but okay. what you might think <laughs> but this is one that we have not answered will not answer and boy it comes up a lot yeah i'm this close and i'm for the listeners <laughs> have like a half an inch between my fingers i'm this close to not knowing if we know <laughs> <laughs> that's a safe position to take in this moment that's right, in any case. That's right. so let's talk about stan this season Okay. Uh, Mr. Director, professionally, his connection to the FBI seems more strained than ever. I mean, his relationship with Adderholt is good, as yeah. always, but everybody else seems to be trying his patience, trying his commitment. But personally, he seems like he's better than ever. Yeah. He's got love in his life. He doesn't seem to have questions about her. And, you know, his relationship with Matthew seems good. He's yeah. got the Jennings kids over as like extra kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you see him? I mean, I think those two things are related, in fact, actually. I think Dan is feeling the human cost of his job and the world in which he lives. I think as he begins to settle into his new formation of his personal life, you know, his, his divorce is sort of settled and his, he's getting closer to his son again and he's found new love. As he enjoys his personal life, the life that he's spent his, his life professionally protecting giving people the opportunity to have a free mm. life in america he realizes how much of that life he has not been living himself he's been a man who's completely enveloped by uh, a commitment and patriotic relationship to country and i think he's becoming increasingly frustrated disillusioned with the i mean it's sort of a mirroring in, a, in an interesting way of, of philip's own disillusionment with his life i think mm. i've always found them to be sort of two sides of the same coin mm. and i think it's a natural human progression to at some point step back and wonder the cost of the job in human terms and the people i mean everyone stan has encountered in the first you know seasons that we've known him have, have come into some troubled times mm. he lost his partner he lost his boss he lost his lover all to and real loss i mean not mm -hmm. just loss but death mm -hmm. i think it's beginning to raise in Stan a consciousness and a questioning of of the balance of that cost and what it all adds up to. So his friction with the FBI, his frustration with the bureaucracy that sometimes overrides his own Im impulse to protect his sources, to protect his allies, to protect his colleagues, is connected, in fact, to his ability to have a more thoroughly enjoyable mm -hmm. real life outside mm -hmm. of work. 
And he's because he really sacrificed. I mean, we, we, that's been a little bit less emphasized, but in the first season, right. this guy has really paid a huge price for his, yeah. for the work and the commitment that he And has. even when we meet him, we don't even know what happened before we no, met him, but it's alluded to the fact that before yeah. we even entered him into this world, he had a pretty costly experience yeah. as an undercover yeah. agent. Yeah elsewhere yeah so yeah there's a, a great cost that stan has paid and he has hit sort of bottom as we've watched him through this story to a, being a, a, a divorced distanced father living alone with a dead partner and a dead lover i mean that's pretty mm. and a dead boss right, so, right. you know <laughs> poor stan <laughs> i used to say poor martha and i'm like yeah. we're sorry yeah <laughs> and all i hear about is poor martha martha come on <laughs> Well, maybe that explains a little bit of why Stan has such a strong reaction when he hears that the CIA are exploiting what they know about Oleg through him. That surprised me in a way, in a, you know, in a believable way, that Stan, whose you know loyalty to the FBI is is unquestioned, but he just seems angry. But, well, these are human beings, yeah. and Oleg has delivered to Stan the biggest piece of information. That the FBI, that the counterintelligence department has had in, in quite a while, it leads to a successful operation, and the resu- and the response of the CIA is great. Let's milk this cow to death. Let's let's squeeze this guy for all we can get. And Stan's attitude is he's served our country, he's betrayed his country, he's given us this huge piece of information which has led to a successful operation. Let him be. He's gone. Mm-hmm. He's not even here. And they want to understandably, from another point of view, milk this source for as much as it can possibly get. And to the benefit of the U.S. intelligence services, you know, and probably cost him his life in the end. Mm. And Stan feels at some point enough is enough. At some point, this man served our cause and he we should let him go. It's not a computer algorithm. These are human beings we're talking with. But, but, but the absolute point of view is a computer algorithm. It's get everything you can, leave them dry and dead. And Stan has been, his tolerance for that attitude is diminished. So this is an episode that is full of resets. Joe and Joel, I'm looking at you because you've sent us down certain paths. And now, <laughs> switcheroo! You know, Misha, there's something really heartbreaking about Misha, this, you know, this half often, or maybe if in practice full often because he has a father, but he doesn't get to see them. Uh, he makes it all the way to America after an amazing adventure. And then he's told he can't see his father after all. First of all, it does seem to be like really something genetic or hereditary about spy work uh, or certainly travel agency, uh, <laughs> you know, because he managed to get there. But well, remember, his mother was a travel agent as well. That was her cover. Uh, right. <laughs> and, oh, that's right. They met in, yeah. And don't forget, we don't know yet where that story is going to land. Mm. So, mm. And in terms of his ability to get out, he's no ordinary Soviet citizen, not just because he grew up as the son of those parents but because his mother left him with a bunch of fake documents a lot of money and all the yeah. con- and told him who to go to and how and what to do and 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 the code words and the phone number and exactly. all of those exactly. things but as you point out it took took a lot of guts and a lot yeah. of initiative yeah and a, a lot of yearning yeah now gabriel and claudia have a conversation it's very cold about whether misha can be allowed to see philip uh which of course he can't and they say they're thinking of philip are they? Do you each think they are? I mean, are they just being single-minded about the cause, about the motherland, about their careers? Well, I think. Or are they thinking about Philip? You're you're right that everybody will have a different 
interpretation. So you, for example, think it's cold. This goes back to last season. <laughs> yeah. where we're like, how could you say that, June? But to us, they're really weighing all the different perspectives. I think they care about Philip and are really concerned about him, but have to balance that with, as Claudia points out, what happens? Hmm. What happens when his son shows up and says, hey, guess what? I was in a mental institution. Does Does Philip go crazy does he defect at that point i mean it's it's pretty combustible stuff and they have that's their job to balance it and there's another problem too which is even if philip's okay with that what's the center gonna think given what's already in philip's file so what does that mean for the future of philip for the future of philip and elizabeth not just as operatives mm -hmm. but as parents and of children mm -hmm. so we can't believe you're so cold as to think that that conversation was cold. You're the cold one, Jim. Cold. Burr, and by the way, you burr. know, it does touch upon a pretty seismic crack in the entire Soviet side of our mm -hmm. story, which is Claudia and Gabriel both allude to the fact that Misha's not crazy. He fought in a war in Afghanistan. Yeah. He, he thought it was something was wrong with it. And they put him in a, in a psych ward. Mm -hmm. So they both speak to the problems of the soviet state mm -hmm. who were there working for who they've who they've committed their lives to serve mm -hmm. but they're but they're both sort of in a wink and a nod and some very subtly sort of saying the soviet state is screwed up like something's wrong it's um, really interesting there was a little more freedom inside the kgb to talk about these things and outside it I think because they were powerful mm. and that's not to say that it was all free and you could say whatever you want but even inside the soviet union there was in some circles in the kgb you could go a little bit further they had access to more materials they had to know more about the west so they had access to learn more and to read more and to learn more and and there was just a little more uh, latitude mm. for people to talk with each other yeah we also saw another explosive scene between two russians of different generations when when Oleg comes home and he finds that his dad has set up a little uh, you know, dating game. Yeah, diddle, diddle. We don't have a word for whatever that <laughs> yeah, was. Whatever that was. <laughs> no we know English that it's word for that event. <laughs> we know it's a real thing that parents did there. Really? Yeah, we got yeah. that from our uh, from our wonderful consultant in Russia. Noah, why do you think that Oleg was so mad about his father setting up that dinner with three lovely young ladies? Or, or what? How That's did you direct that? Yeah. We joke about this all the time. Shouldn't you have been like, you're the greatest dad yeah. ever? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think it helped that unbeknownst to his father, he's being blackmailed by the CIA Yeah, right that now. doesn't help. So that's, I, I mean, he's I under a certain amount of stress. And he's grief-stricken. He's grief-stricken. Right. His right. brother has, has been killed. His mm -hmm. lover has been killed. There's a parental dynamic too, which is sort of dad has no clue of the pain and suffering and what I'm going through. And mm -hmm. he thinks I want to play with girls. Mm -hmm. Like Oleg's head is so elsewhere right now mm -hmm. in terms of the first on, on his list of a hundred things to do, finding a date is not even on that list. <laughs> um, so coming into this sort of free form and his father sort of is living high. His father is a successful, you know, very mm -hmm. high up in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the establishment. I think Oleg feels he has no clue as also as he's sort of encountering his, the, the tasks of his job, um, which is really putting the thumb and pressuring these these uh, low level you know yeah. grocery store employees and yeah. warehouse. I think he feels you know there's a discord between his father's understanding of his world and 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 what it actually is. Mm -hmm. So the thinking that he's looking for a date is is sort of infuriating in a way that only a parent can be. Right. Okay. So let's talk about another aspect of the resetting, um, where things that have taken a long time. And had a high cost are sort of discarded or 
drastically redirected. So we've also had that happen with the situation in Kansas and the understanding of what's really happening in Kansas. Oh, boy. So why did you do that? Well, that was something we planned all along. And I think part of what interested us was the idea of a story where everything they did seemed so right that even Philip, even Philip could get behind the costs of it. And then to reveal that you're not seeing your enemy right. Mm. You're just not calculating right. And it's too late to fix what you've done. I have to say, though, I mean, you've alluded to my being too hard on Philip. Cold. I believe we said cold. (laughs) Cold. I think maybe last year I did call him a psychopath. But but I think that in this is a case where Philip was much too hard on himself. Sure, they killed Randy. That was collateral damage. That's never a good thing. But because of what Randy told them, they were able to find the truth. I think of all of the killings that Philip has done over the years, that's one of the least unjustified ones. Oh my God, to paraphrase uh, the president of the United States, he's not the psychopath. You're the psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were to make a list of Philip's killings and say which is worse, it would be hard to know <laughs> what ranks at the top. But at the end of the day, this is a totally innocent guy and Philip's tolerance for it has been getting less and less and less. So if you put those two together, a totally innocent guy with Mm. Philip's tolerance at an all-time low, uh, he's just suffering with this in a way that is, I think, new. Now, toward the end when Philip does take it so hard, Elizabeth offers to take more of the weight of operations on herself, but Philip refuses that. Is is that too chivalrous. Is it it chivalry? Is it a two musketeers kind of thing? Or or is it... Is, is it that he's word for her? I mean, what's going on there? Well, I think as we sometimes answer these questions, all of them and probably more. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we always like it when there are a lot of deep, unconscious answers for these questions. What we know for sure is if you asked Philip that question, he couldn't tell you exactly. Mm. He's just expressing a feeling that he's having in that moment. Lotus one, two, three is one of the punnier titles in the history of the Americans, but it's also like it works on so many levels. So like which came first, the pun, or did you just write that whole logistical thing and the whole wheat thing and the whole bug thing just so you could use that title? Uh, I, I, I didn't even program? get the pun till this second. Ah, this is the moment that I got that pun. Did you guys both get the pun? Tell the truth. Everybody got the pun but me? No, no. this is new for me yeah. too. Okay. I didn't get the pun. Yeah. I, I still don't get the pun. Like it's a lotus, right? Yeah, oh, lotus. Bugs and yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> really good. We're we geniuses. Definitely. We planned it all along. We're punning geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to top that. Thanks, we do everyone. This, we do the show for <laughs> the puns. That's, and then you know, now you know. <laughs> Before we bring this episode to a close, I was curious if Costa Ronin, who plays Oleg Burov, agreed with Noah Emmerich's explanation for why Oleg was mad when his dad surprised him with three female dinner guests. We'll hear a lot more from Costa in a later episode, but here he is on that very special family meal. I am now in the Burov's dining room with Costa Ronin, also known as Oleg Igorovich Burov. We're sitting at the very table where, Costa, you came in today, Oleg came in today, and found that his parents had provided three young women for him to choose from. What an unusual setup. It was. Welcome. Welcome, by the way, to uh, our Borov's family home. And yes, yes, indeed, it was was a very, uh, very interesting scene in terms of Oleg and in terms of the relationship also with his family. 
I think his parents realize that it's time for him to settle down and uh, start some roots and, and grow up. Yeah. And they invited his childhood friends to join the dinner. And uh, they cooked a beautiful feast. They were just about to have a nice chat until Oleg showed up. <laughs> and then it's a whole different story. It's, uh, it kind of went into a very different direction. Well, I was kind of surprised, honestly, that you, you, Oleg, were mad. Because, of course, it's a little embarrassing. I can see a little embarrassing. You know, your parents think you need help finding a girl and Oleg clearly has no problems in those directions. But why were you so mad? One of the reasons that the relationship between Oleg and his father are so complicated is because his father has got a massive shadow because of what he does professionally, because of the kind of man he is. And it took a very long time and a lot of strength and a lot of moves for Oleg to get out from under his shadow, hence the posting in Washington, hence the everything we've covered over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And so now that Oleg has become his own man, he's in back in the family home for various reasons, and he finds himself in a position where his father again is telling him what to do and trying to guide him through his next life move. Mm. And that, of course, hits a nerve and uh, that's not something that Oleg takes lightly. Thanks to Noah Emmerich, Joe Weisberg, Joel Fields and Costa Ronin for talking episode 505 with me. Thanks also to Ethan Simon for recording assistance and to the American Sarah Nolan for her organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be talking about episode 506, Crossbreed. I'm June Thomas. This show is part of the Panoply Network. <laughs>